Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the uh, Equip Institute. Look at the screens. We've got this logo up here now. Isn't that slick? I didn't know. I didn't know that existed until I walked in here. I like the way. I like the way that looks. So we'll get started with a word of prayer in just a second. But I have put up here on the whiteboard uh, just what the schedule looks like the next few weeks. Uh, of course, we're starting the New Testament. Uh, tonight, and then we'll finish it in three sessions. I told you this is a big picture sort of overview. But uh, just so everybody knows, uh, be sure on the 22nd that you don't come or you'll be here by yourself. It'll be, it'll, it'll be, it'll be you and it'll be the ghost that walks around here in the evenings when everybody else is gone. And then remember on the 6th, uh, that's our bonus meeting, which is just going to be kind of open conversation, uh, may come in with two or three kind of informal things to talk about, but we'll have a, a good time uh, whenever we do that. Let's begin officially with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we love your word. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have this evening to think together about your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, among us and through us for our good and your glory and the sake of our neighbor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, beginning again with uh, our introduction as we always do, just to reinforce why we're here. The Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist Church to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. So this fall, we are nearing the end of our 12-week study of the Christian story. Uh, two weeks ago, we finished a four-week overview of the Old Testament. Last week, we talked about the intertestamental period, and uh, that was fun, wasn't it, talking about all that. And uh, this week, we're going to start a three-week overview of the New Testament. Now, this is not in the note packet, but I want to go ahead and just put this before you. If we go all the way back to the first week, some of you were with us, uh, we talked about how the Equip Institute has four different themes. We talk about Christian story, we talk about Christian belief, we talk about Christian formation, we talk about Christian witness. And that's two years, four semesters worth of topics. So just so it's on your radar, in the spring, we're going to do Christian belief, and it's going to be a 12-week overview of basic Christian doctrine, and that's what we're going to be talking about. So this has been our big-picture overview of how to read the Bible, thinking about the Old and New Testament. Uh, when we come together uh, it's next semester, it's going to be a week on the doctrine of Scripture, and a week on the doctrine of Christ, and a week on the doctrine of salvation, and things like that. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, come join us next spring, and that's what we'll be talking about. But tonight, we're going to be talking about the Gospels and the book of Acts. And I need to go ahead and give you, I'll, I'll say in a few minutes that there's another caveat, but I need to begin with one big caveat. Obviously, this is a lot of material to cover in an hour, so I would just remind you, this is a big picture overview. Maybe in the future we can come back and spend a a whole semester talking about the gospel and Acts. That'd be a lot of fun. But, uh, but right now, we're just doing that big picture story of the Bible, and so this is the 30,000-foot view 
to help us as we are readers of the Gospels to understand the Gospels. So we'll start there. Uh, the Gospels are part of an ancient genre in the Greek world uh, called bios. And if you look at that word, it would immediately call to mind uh, biography. It, it's not like modern biographies, but this was kind of like their Greek world version of biographies. The Gospels present historical events, but not always in a strict chronology. You may have noticed that if you've read some of the Gospels side by side, that uh, they're not always strictly chronological. So everything happened, but they're not being strictly chronological like this is what happened on this day and this is what happened on that day all the time. Sometimes they are. The Gospels are historical theological documents that are arranged in such a way as to communicate to readers who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, and why belief in Jesus matters. So this is not just history for the sake of history. These are documents that are meant to teach and persuade and to bring about belief. Though Jesus is referenced in both pagan and Jewish texts from the first century, nearly everything we know with certainty about Jesus comes from the four canonical Gospels. Just about the only other thing that we know about Jesus with certainty is that there was a guy named Jesus. Some people thought that he was divine in some way and he was crucified. Well, guess what? The Gospels tell us that also. So, uh, so there's not a whole lot about Jesus, but uh, sometimes if you're ever watching one of these history channels, who is the real Jesus sort of thing, some liberal scholar will get up there and say, well, we don't even know if Jesus existed. There is no real historian anywhere, even among the atheists and the agnostics, who think that Jesus didn't really exist. There's documentation outside the New Testament. Uh, it just tells us a little bit, but it at least demonstrates that He was there. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very closely related to each other. So they're called sometimes the synoptic Gospels, think the word synopsis, because they summarize most of Jesus' public ministry, and they tend to be arranged a little bit more chronologically than John's Gospel. We'll talk about John in a few minutes. So we're going to just kind of go in order, and what I'm going to present you with, almost everything I'm going to say is debated. And I'm admitting that. But I'm going to give you kind of the conservative evangelical consensus on each of these. So it doesn't mean that there's not somebody. You may say, but wait, so-and-so says such and such, and they do. And some of this we don't know with 100% certainty, some of these details. But there is a consensus out there. So that's what I'm sharing, and, and we can certainly talk about some of those things. So with that, Mark was probably the earliest gospel that was written. It was probably written as early as the mid-50s A.D., about 25 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He likely relied upon eyewitness testimony from Peter. And some of you may have heard that before. Remember, we talked about this the, early in the semester, that uh, all of the authors in the New Testament were apostles or people closely connected with apostles, other than maybe Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Mark was not an apostle, but he was closely connected to Paul and Peter at different times. 
And so the early church, kind of after the time of the New Testament, tells us that Mark is giving us Peter's recollections of what happened, and, and there's no reason to question that early testimony. Matthew's gospel was probably written next in the early 60s, and it likely relied upon Mark, maybe oral tradition that was out there. We know that there was oral tradition in the early church. Even Paul references that. And of course, Matthew's own memory, because he was an apostle, and he had walked with Jesus. And so chances are all of that is kind of in Matthew's mind as he's putting together his gospel. Luke's gospel was probably written next in the mid-60s, and we know Luke relied upon many sources because he tells us that at the very beginning of his gospel. Uh, Might have been Mark, maybe Matthew, probably definitely oral tradition, but uh, he just lays his cards right on the table and says he's gathered all the best sources as he's giving his account. And, uh, And who was Luke connected to? He was connected to Paul. Luke was connected to Paul. So he wasn't an apostle, but he was a close associate of Paul. And Luke also wrote Acts around the same time, and the two books are meant to be read together. But we want to be careful here. Sometimes people will say you can't understand Acts without Luke, and you can't understand Luke without Acts. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. So I heard this analogy while I was preparing this uh, a few days ago. Uh, How many of you have uh, seen the movie versions of The Lord of the Rings? Several of you have seen that? So if you start watching the second movie, you're going to have no idea what's going on if you've not watched the first movie. Now let me ask you a different question. How many of you have seen the Rocky movies? Now, you can come into Rocky 2 and have not watched Rocky 1, and you've got a pretty good idea of what's going on. It's good to have seen Rocky 1, but it's not absolutely necessary. That's how Luke and Acts work. It's not like the Lord of the Rings where if you read Acts and you didn't read Luke, you're lost. They are closely connected, but, uh, but you don't have to have them right there next to each other to understand what's going on in either of them. Does that make sense? So they are, Luke is the, or Acts is the sequel to Luke, but, uh, but somebody who just opens their Bible and starts reading Acts, they're going to know what's going on. They don't have to have read Luke first, even though it's a good thing to have done that. The Gospel of John is just different. It is arranged more thematically than the Synoptic Gospels, and it covers less of Jesus' ministry. There's fewer details about where Jesus did and what He said. Though all the Gospels are concerned with theology, sometimes we hear things like this. John's Gospel is the most theological of the Gospels. He's just digging a little bit deeper than the Synoptic Gospels do. The author was John, an apostle, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. Now the early church was unanimous in its belief that John's Gospel was the last to be written and that it was intended to be a complement to the synoptics, that he was aware of them, and he's adding more details later. Uh, John probably wrote sometime between 70 and 95, but nobody knows for certain when, uh, when John wrote. We just know that he wrote later. So it could be the case, what I said about Mark coming before Matthew, coming before Luke, that's debatable. Again, I'm giving you kind of the scholarly consensus 
But everybody in the early church and scholars agree that whichever of those other three came first, second, and third, John came last. And he's complimenting what they did with the story that he's telling. Now sometimes, I want us to be really careful here. We want to be good readers of Scripture. Sometimes readers are tripped up at differences in wording or details in the Gospels. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. This is a rhetorical question. If you raise your hand, we're all going to ignore it. How many of you, as you've ever read something in Matthew's Gospel and say you've read it in Luke's Gospel and then the wording or the minor details are a little bit different and you thought to yourself, what does that mean? Can we, can we, can we trust the Bible? And there are professors out there, especially the type of professors that teach the Bible in secular universities to freshmen and sophomores who are taking religion classes, who love to say things like, well, Matthew says it this way, and Mark says it this way, and they contradict each other, so everything you learned in Sunday school was wrong. And some of you may have had classes like that at some point if you went to that sort of university. I want to be very, very clear. The wording is not identical all the time in the Gospels. However, this does not undermine the authority and truthfulness of Scripture for several reasons. First, as mentioned above, the authors were not writing a strict chronology. They were arranging the Gospels to make particular arguments to specific readers. And when we talk about the individual Gospels in a minute, we'll talk about who we think were the original audiences, and sometimes that's the reason that they put things together the way they do. So let me say it this way. We ought not to expect men in the first century to have written 20th and 21st century technical biographies. That's holding them to a standard they did not intend to fulfill. Does that make sense? Second... And when you think about this, I think this is going to make sense. Most scholars agree that many of Jesus' teachings were probably offered more than once to different audiences on different occasions. The authors are always recording true words that Jesus spoke, but they are not always, they are sometimes, but they are not always necessarily quoting Jesus exactly. Let me give you an example. If you look in Matthew's Gospel, we have this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. We look in Luke's Gospel, we have this thing called the Sermon on the Plain. Two-thirds of it is identical, and some of it is a little bit different. Is that a contradiction? Is Luke confused about where Jesus preached that sermon and he heard a different story? Jesus probably preached that sort of message multiple times. And the Holy Spirit led Matthew to give us the version that was preached on the mount, which by the way is really a hill, if you've ever been there. It's not even Paris Mountain size. But, uh, but you know, Jesus probably preached a very similar sermon in that setting, and He probably preached a very similar set, uh, sermon whenever he was on that plane. Remember, Jesus was an itinerant preacher for three years. If we were to take everything that we see about Jesus in the Gospels and put it side by side without any reference to chronology 
It would seem like a few months that he moved to a few different towns. We just have snapshots of what Jesus was doing, what the Holy Spirit felt like we needed to know. So Jesus spoke all those words. He was in all those places. But they're not trying to give us, in every case in the Gospels, a play-by-play of exactly what He said when. We're getting examples of Jesus' teaching, the most important things He said, and often where He said them, and that's what the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. So again, we need to be careful. It's not that there are errors or contradictions. God's Word is true. But we need to remember the genres these are. We talked about that early on too. And we don't hold the New Testament to the same types of standards that we would hold uh, David McCullough's biography of John Adams or uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, writing about uh, Abraham Lincoln's leadership team or something like that. That's not what they were trying to do. They were trying to give us an accurate reading of who Jesus was, what He said, what He did, why it mattered, and why we ought to believe. So we want to take the Gospels on their own terms rather than imposing some sort of modern standard on them and then saying, oh, doesn't measure up, it's not true, we can't trust the Bible. Any questions about that? That's because I don't know what I think about that theory. So it is a theory, and uh, some of my professors and friends believed it, and others said, I don't think Q is a real document that's out there. Um, What we know is that there's oral tradition, because Paul references it. And so um, I just leave that up to mystery. Uh, I don't know if there was a Q document or not. For those of you who are wondering, uh, the Q theory is the idea that there is another source that was out there that did not make it into the Bible. Uh, But if you look at Matthew and Luke, the places where uh, they use the exact same wording, but Mark doesn't. You tracking with me? Mark doesn't use the same wording, but Matthew and Luke do, that Matthew and Luke are quoting something else. And it's been called Q. I don't know whether that existed or not, and I don't think it ultimately matters whether it existed or not. What we know with certainty is that there was oral tradition in the early church. And this was an oral culture where everybody was taught to memorize and repeat what they had heard and to pass that along to the next generation and whatnot. So maybe there's a cue. Uh, I don't, I'm not bothered by that at all. I'm kind of 50-50 on it. Uh, but what we know is that there was oral tradition. And we know that Luke, at least, gathered as many sources as he could so that he could tell the most complete story possible. So that's a great question. Any others? All right, let's talk about these Gospels. So I'm going to give you my three caveats before we get into this, okay? Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Remember, number one, this is a broad overview, not a detailed dive into each Gospel. Number two, the Gospels have far more in common than they have differences. Even John, being different than the synoptics, 
the Gospels have way more in common than they are different. And so number three, highlighting a theme emphasized in one Gospel doesn't mean that that theme isn't addressed in another Gospel. It just means it's especially prominent in that Gospel. Does that make sense? But they're all telling the same story and they're talking about the same stuff. But they tell it in slightly different ways to address different audiences. So let's start with Matthew. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy and birth narrative, and he culminates with Jesus' death, resurrection, and commissioning of his disciples. Matthew frames his gospel around Jesus' relationship to Israel and shows how Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. He proclaims God's kingdom and points to that kingdom through both uh, His teachings and His miracles. Jesus fulfills Judaism through His perfect obedience to the law, His sacrificial death, and His victorious resurrection. And He is constituting a new people, the church, which includes members from all nations. Again, I'm not saying you don't find those themes mentioned in the other Gospels, but like this is the way Matthew tells the story. A distinctive feature of Matthew's Gospel is that it's built around five discourses or five different teaching units might be the way to think about this. There's the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, the calling and the sending out of the disciples to preach in the villages in chapter 10, There's a long section of parables in chapter 13. There's teaching about the nature of the kingdom and even starting to talk about the church in Matthew 18. And then there's a long section on eschatology. That means last things. It's a long section on end times, if you will, in in chapters 23, 24, and 25. And what lots of scholars point out is that those different discourses because that's chunks of teaching, if you will, Uh, it functions as almost like a discipleship manual that was embedded in Matthew's gospel for those early readers. Like, here's some things about who Jesus was, and look, here's teachings that Matthew wants us to see. And then a little bit more about Jesus and his story, and look, a long section on teaching that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks is important. Does that make sense? So we've got these long, big teaching units that are there in Matthew. Now there are some other major themes that come up, and I just have a few of them that we'll mention here. Uh, Jesus is simultaneously the promised Messiah, the rightful heir of David's throne, and the divine Son of God. Jesus is the rightful interpreter of the meaning and application of God's law. The kingdom of heaven is already among us, but it's not yet fully revealed. Israel, speaking now of of the nation of Israel at that time, Israel has lost her way, but should repent and reclaim her calling as a light to the nations. Israel's judgment has already begun, but one day God will judge all people, He'll put everything right, and He'll fully consummate the kingdom of heaven. Any questions about that broad overview of Matthew's gospel? 
Yes, sir. I think that uh, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are more or less synonyms and that there's not any significant difference between them. Other than Matthew felt like using that kingdom of heaven was going to connect with his audience and, uh, and Luke and Mark felt like kingdom of God was going to connect a little bit better. But because they're clearly speaking about the same thing, just using different names, I see those terms as being synonymous and don't want to overthink different nuances if they're there. I, I don't think they're there, but if they're there, I don't think they're significant enough that it would change the interpretation. But that's always one that comes up because it's definitely different words. Tom. I may have missed it, but did, did you say who the primary audience was for Matthew? You know what? I, uh, I did not say who the primary audience was, and I just left that out, so I'll tell you now. Uh, that was a mistake. Uh, the primary audience was almost certainly... Uh, a Jewish community, a, a group of Jewish followers of Jesus, and, uh, and probably their extended family and friends who were Jewish but not yet followers of Jesus. So he's reinforcing in many ways the Jewishness of Jesus to, uh, to connect with those Messianic followers and probably to better connect the gospel to uh, those who were uh, faithful in their Judaism, but had rejected Jesus. Someone said that's part of the reason he said kingdom of heaven in Matthew, because it would be less likely to offend. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, I don't buy that. Okay. So it's possible. I'm just I'm not persuaded by that argument. I think there's plenty of things in the Gospel of Matthew that would be offensive to a Jew that was rejecting the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. So I'm just not sure that, that he's trying to tiptoe around that. Let's talk about Mark. Uh, and since I did forget to put it down, we'll just go ahead and say uh, that uh, we think that Mark is probably uh, writing to a more mixed group that would have included Jews and Gentiles. And again, it's probably uh, Peter's take, maybe with some reinforcement with things that Paul had also heard from the apostles uh, along the way. Mark begins with Jesus' ministry of proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom in word and demonstrating it in deed, and especially when we say deed, uh, the healings and the exorcisms. Like Mark's gospel, he comes right out of the gate. He's preaching, he's healing people, he's casting out demons. The first half of the gospel focuses on Jesus' messianic identity. It's kind of building who Jesus is, if you will, as you're reading. The latter half focuses upon Jesus' fulfillment of that identity through His death and resurrection. Marcus focused more on Jesus' actions than His teachings. He has teachings. There's just more action going on, if you will. And there's a really quick pace to Mark's narrative. If you've been reading through this, you know, every few pages, and then, and suddenly, and this and that. So it's very, very fast-paced. Mark also emphasizes that Jesus' identity and the nature of the kingdom are mysterious to those around him. 
And Jesus gradually and strategically reveals both of those things to his disciples, kind of bringing that inner circle in further and further. And remember, it's Mark's gospel where you keep, keep seeing the demons trying to say, we know who you are, and Jesus is going, shh. It's not time. He's controlling that timetable where he's bringing in his followers and letting them know who he is. Now remember, Mark is, Mark's a man of action more than teaching. So there's only two discourses. Uh, there's a discourse on the parables in chapter 4, which is very similar to Matthew's discourse on the parables. And then there's another devoted to end times in chapter 13. However, Mark focuses on Jesus' miracles more than Matthew and Luke. Again, lots of miracles in Matthew and Luke, but Mark clearly, he's big on the miracles. He also focuses, and maybe you've noticed this before, upon the disciples' repeated failures to really understand Jesus. Boy, they come off like knuckleheads in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark. He's just regularly saying, you know, you ought to know this. Why, why don't you get this yet? Mark devotes over a quarter of his Gospel to Jesus' final week, but he says relatively little about Jesus' resurrection and ascension compared to the other Gospels. It's there. That's just not what he's really focused on. He's focused much more on kind of the events that are leading up to Jesus' death. So, in maybe anticipation of two questions that are going to come, question that you might be thinking, number one, uh, why did you say earlier most scholars think that Mark was written first? Uh, one of the biggest reasons besides that language that seems to be common to Matthew and Luke and Mark is Mark says nothing about Jesus' origins and very little about the resurrection, though he does talk about the resurrection, and so that's why a lot of scholars say, well, Matthew and Luke come because they're clarifying Jesus' virgin birth and, and that He's the eternal Son of God and whatnot from the very beginning in different ways and in the genealogies. And they're saying much more about the resurrection and the commissioning of the disciples than we get in, in Mark's gospel. And so they're fleshing out that story a little bit more. So that's one of the reasons that scholars think that. Um, in anticipation of question number two, why did you end the latter half with uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 8? Uh, Dan's back there nodding. So he, his little devil horns were coming out. He was ready to ask the question. Um, most Bible scholars do not think that Mark chapter, nine, uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 22, that we find in our English Bibles, were part of the earliest manuscripts and that they were added later. It is possible they were part of the early manuscripts. I believe it is highly improbable. Uh, the wording is different. The grammar and the Greek is different. Um, it's a little weird, some of what happens in that section. And it just seems like one of those early scribes in the 2nd or 3rd or 4th century says, I don't like how this gospel ends. Let's flesh it out a little bit more. And from the very earliest days of Christianity... Christians have said, I'm not sure that was there early on. And that's why many of your Bibles, it's in brackets. Or there's a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts or the most reliable manuscripts don't include that. So I don't think Mark 16, 9 through 22 is Holy Scripture. I don't think it's going to lead you astray. But I don't think it's Holy Scripture. A few other themes... Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man in Mark. He is the true King 
which puts him in conflict with rival powers, whether they are demonic powers, all those exorcisms, or they're human powers, the, the men who are challenging him. He's the suffering servant through which he gives his life as a ransom for many. And his followers should imitate him by being humble, serving others, and even suffering themselves. So questions about Mark. Dan, I saw that you had one. Sorry about that. Yeah. Right. Right. It's just kind of put together weirdly. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions about Mark? So let, go ahead. Mark is steeped with the idea of messianic secrecy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this big, uh, big conversation that's been going on for a couple hundred years among Bible scholars as to. Uh, whether there's this big messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark and whether uh, he's, Mark is trying to uh, be coy about Jesus' identity. And I don't think that's what he's doing. Um, I just think that the way that Mark is telling the story, he wants to be really clear that he's, uh, Jesus is casting those pearls of his identity uh, before people who are receptive and not before the swine, if you will, to use a... A biblical phrase. Like he doesn't want the demons jumping the gun. He doesn't want people who don't believe who he is to figure it out. He's trying to draw out that faith from the disciples. And I think through hearing those stories, draw out the faith of, uh, of those readers. And that's one of the reasons why in the early church, they felt like it was probably a mixed group, a mixed audience that was half convinced or barely convinced. And so Mark is kind of turning up that dimmer switch a little bit more and a little bit more uh, rather than coming right out of the gate and saying who Jesus is uh, from the very beginning. By the way, for this reason, and this is not original to me, um, Mark is a great, great gospel to use as a Bible study with somebody who is a new Christian or somebody who is interested in Christianity. And it's all God's Word. You can use any of it. But Mark, just short, lot of action, progressively reveals who Jesus is. It's just a great book to say, you know, we're going to get together over the next six weeks uh, over a cup of coffee and, and we're going to read a couple of chapters of Mark and talk about them. It's just really, really good for that. Though all of them are good for that. I think Mark is especially good for that because of the way it's structured. Let's talk about Dr. Luke. So... Widely thought that Luke is writing for uh, Greek followers of Christ or uh, Greek seekers who are hearing about interested in Christ. So this is going to be a more uh, Gentile-focused sort of gospel. Luke is the longest gospel in verses, not chapters. Matthew has more chapters, but Luke is actually longer than Matthew. And he devotes far more space to parables than the others. Like Matthew, Luke begins with Jesus' genealogy and birth narrative and then culminates with Jesus' death and resurrection and commissioning of his disciples. Luke's gospel is structured more around a geographic progression from Jesus' itinerant ministry in Galilee to its culmination in Jerusalem. That's present in 
Matthew and, and Mark, but it's just very clear that's what Luke is doing. Now again, he's writing primarily for a Gentile audience, so rather than focusing on messianic prophecies, though he does talk about that some, he's talking more about God's eternal plan, which was promised in the Old Testament and now it's being fulfilled through Jesus' life and ministry. But here's the way to think about this. It seems like Luke is assuming that his readers know less about Judaism than Matthew and Mark are. In fact, let me give you one more hint why we think that's the case. Matthew has several words in Aramaic, which would have been the language on the street for Jews. They wrote in Greek. Greek was the language of the marketplace, but Aramaic is what many Jews spoke to each other in their homes and in their synagogues. Matthew is clearly assuming his early readers understand Aramaic. Luke's the total opposite. Several times in parentheses, he explains things about Judaism. And you might read that and go, wow, that's really helpful. I didn't know that. That's because most of us are Gentiles. <laughs> and so Luke is trying to explain the background for those who are coming into it with less information. Does that make sense? This is very fascinating. For Luke, everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus. Like Adam, Jesus is God's son. Now, I'm not saying they're the son in exactly the same way, and Luke's not either, but if you go to Luke's genealogy, he makes it very clear that there's a sense in which Adam is the son of God. He's the first, and Jesus is also God's son, though he's his eternal son. He is the promised Messiah, the suffering servant, and the coming king. He is a prophet like Moses. He has come to save humans from our sin and to defeat Satan and his minions. He fulfills God's law and the various covenants that God made with Israel. Though most Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah, bringing judgment upon Israel, Jesus is constituting a new people comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. So you can see how that sounds a lot like Matthew, but a little bit different in focus in how he's telling the story. Some other major themes we find in Luke. God is sovereign over history, which is now culminating, that is history is now culminating in Jesus' incarnation, His ministry, and His death. He focuses a lot on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry, which is also promised to His followers. Now, John talks a lot about that too, but sometimes Luke is called... The, uh, the evangelist of the Holy Spirit uh, because of this emphasis throughout his, both in Luke and Acts, uh, we see Luke doing that. Luke talks more than the others about the importance of prayer and worship for God's people. And a major, major theme in Luke, this great reversal of worldly expectations about power and position. The kingdom is for the poor, the oppressed, the demonized, women, Samaritans, Jewish sinners, and Gentile unbelievers. He's an evangelist. They're all evangelists. But he wants to make very, very clear the gospel is for sinners. And the gospel is good news for those who don't find a lot of good news in their culture. 
they're on the margins. Jesus goes after those who are on the margins and brings them into his people. Any questions about Luke's gospel? Yeah. So he starts off telling, saying that he's writing to Theophilus. Mm-hmm. How does that person relate to the rest of the audience that might include this? So I love the question about Theophilus. I'm going to table it till we get to Acts because Acts is also for Theophilus, so I'm going to mention there one of two different options with what's going on with that. Yep. Other questions? I love the Gospel of Luke. I mean, I like them all, but I I love the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of John. Then there's that other guy. The structure of John's Gospel is totally different from the synoptics. His entire gospel is a deep dive into the identity of Jesus. In fact, it's been described this way sometimes, that uh, John sees those synoptic gospels and his gospel is almost like a commentary on who the Jesus of those gospels is. Does that make sense? Digging deeper and fleshing out the picture. Whereas the synoptics build up to the idea that Jesus is both divine and human, John makes it clear right out of the gate that Jesus is the God-man. John begins with eternity past, reframing creation as the work of the eternal Son who became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has supernatural knowledge and authority over all creation. Again, you can get this out of the other Gospels, but John wants it to be clear very early on. God's triune nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit permeates John's Gospel. The Father sends the Son who represents and reveals the Father. The Son is empowered by the Spirit whom the Son will send to help His followers. Here's the way to think about this. At least here's the way I think about this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke worship the triune God, but they largely assume the doctrine of the Trinity. John wants us to see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's not just kind of in the background. It's foregrounded more how the three persons of the Trinity are related to each other. John's focus is less on the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated and more on the everlasting life Jesus gives to those who enter His kingdom through faith. I'm not saying He doesn't talk about the kingdom, and I'm not saying the synoptics don't talk about eternal life. John is really concerned about eternal life and wants everybody to know that... uh, that whenever you enter into the kingdom, it is the beginning of life that will not end. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sins. Sinners must be born again and should continue to abide in Jesus by faith. As the Father and Son are united, so believers should be united through the Spirit. Jesus' mission is continued by His followers, whom He sends out in the power of the Spirit. Now to make His case about Jesus' identity, John includes many familiar events and discourses from the other Gospels as well as some new ones. 
But what really stands out is the structure. The structure of John's gospel has three distinctives, all of which help demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish festivals and institutions, including the temple, that He is Yahweh, and that He is sovereign over all creation. So here are His three kind of unique emphases. First, the structure is far more thematic than chronological with a much greater emphasis on Jesus' time in Jerusalem, including the final week of His life, which takes up half the gospel, is about Jesus' last week. So He's just much less concerned about what happened when and more concerned about who Jesus was and why it matters. Second, John includes seven, in English, I am statements, wherein Jesus identifies Himself with Yahweh. This is what would have been heard by the earliest audience. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. In English, it just sounds like he's making claims about himself, like he's making analogies, and he is making analogies. It is crystal clear in the original language that he is claiming to be God. And that is exactly how his hearers understood it, and it was scandalous to them, those who didn't believe. It was scandalous to them. Third, John also includes seven signs or key miracles that demonstrate his power over the created order. Giving you to them here in canonical order, he turns the water into wine. Or we're Baptists. Turns the water into Welches. Some of you thought that was funny. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals the man born blind. And he resurrects Lazarus. Now, bless you. Now... Several of those are found in other Gospels, but Jesus is clearly every few chapters bringing up another one of these signs. He's structuring His Gospel around these signs. That again, every one of them demonstrate exactly what the first part of John says. What does John beginning to say? It says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God." He was uh, there at the beginning. All things were created through Him and for Him. This is what we see at the beginning of John. The same God who spoke the world into existence is the one who is Jesus of Nazareth who is walking around performing these miracles, every every one of them demonstrating His power over what He created. Does that make sense? Whatever it is that He's doing. Any questions about John's gospel? All right. Let's talk about the book of Acts. I've heard some great sermon series on the gospels. I just wish I had heard a good sermon series on the book of Acts. I keep waiting. Maybe maybe one day. Luke, uh, except, except, except Luke 
Luke 8. I heard a great sermon on Luke 8, but all the rest of them, I'm just not sure. Uh, Luke wrote Acts as a sequel to his gospel. So there's a lot of thematic overlap between Luke and Acts. Luke is writing for a primarily Gentile readership. So that brings us to Theophilus. So Theophilus in Greek means friend of God. And there's two different big theories and scholars kind of split 50-50 on this. So one theory is that Theophilus is a particular individual who was named Theophilus. There were other people named Theophilus in the early church. And Luke is writing to this person, Theophilus, who has asked for an account of the gospel. The other theory is that uh, Theophilus is more like a representative sort of person. Those who would call themselves friends of God, who are interested in hearing more about who Jesus is. And, uh, and he's sort of the conversation partner that's meant to represent everybody who might be interested. I don't know. I could flip a coin on that. Um, so I'll just say, um, you know, I'll go 50.1 tonight and say it was a dude named Theophilus. But uh, could have also, though, been like Theophilus is this representative person of all the types of people that are friends of God that are learning about who Jesus is and are interested in hearing more. Acts covers the first generation of Christian expansion, covering the period from approximately 30 A.D. to 65 A.D. Might give or take a couple of years in either direction, but think more or less the moment right after Jesus' death until uh, the time Peter and Paul would have been martyred under Nero. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about Paul next week. The major figures are Peter... And I show you the chapters where we find a lot about Peter. Uh, three brief chapters on Hellenistic Jewish evangelists, uh, people like Philip and Stephen. And then Paul, uh, who becomes the main character about halfway through. The structure of Acts has three key distinctives. First, and, and Pastor Josh has hammered this home, Acts 1.8 serves as a thematic outline for the entire book as the gospel spreads in Acts from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to much of the rest of the Roman world and sometimes even beyond the Roman world, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's beginning to spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. Second, there are several evangelistic discourses where one of the apostles recounts the gospel to unbelievers. Sometimes those discourses are delivered to unbelieving Jews, and I give you some examples. There's others. Other times the discourses are directed to Gentile unbelievers. And then some of them, most famously Paul's address at Mars Hills, are more apologetic than evangelistic, and they're building the bridge to the gospel, and the gospel's kind of at the end. But everybody agrees it's structured around these sermons where things happen... And then Peter or Paul have the opportunity either to a small group of people or a large crowd to say this is who Jesus is and this is why it matters. And all of those sermons are a little bit different, but they're all telling the same story, suited for whoever it is they're preaching to. 
Finally, there's a sense in which the identity of the church is developing gradually throughout Acts. It, develop, it, it represents a transitional time in redemptive history. From, early, from the earliest Jewish followers of Jesus in Palestine who embraced the way, the earliest name we see for Christianity in the book of Acts, to an increasingly multi-ethnic and transnational community that's going to be called Christianity. So for that reason, and, and some of you have heard this before, we talked about it briefly a few weeks ago, Christians continue to debate how much of Acts should be read descriptively rather than prescriptively. Now this is what I mean by that. It's not entirely clear how often we should look at Acts and say that's a blueprint for exactly how we should be doing things. And the reason is because things change throughout the book of Acts. Does that make sense? It keeps developing a little bit more and the structure gets a little bit clearer. I mean, even if you want to think about church leadership, early in the book of Acts, it's the apostles. And the apostles and the evangelists are leading everything. By the time we get to the latter chapters of the book of Acts, we still have the apostles and they're appointing elders who are leading the churches. So there's a development from the apostles gathering large groups and breaking up in homes to there being elders or pastors or bishops. I think those three terms are synonymous in the New Testament. But what we would think of, you know, the, the, the elders are appointing Joshes to lead those congregations that have developed. We see early on uh, that they're sharing many of their resources so that nobody uh, is in need. Uh, and so we often see that at the beginning of the book of Acts. And that's the reason that all the Marxists love the book of Acts is because they think it's teaching communism. But by the time we get to the middle of the book of Acts, what we see is that the same people who were sharing things are dirt poor. And Paul's out raising money for them as he's preaching the gospel and sending it back. And so there's development that's happening there uh, in the book of Acts. And so again, we just always like, here's a good rule of thumb. Everything that's in the book of Acts happened. It's truthful. But as a general rule, when we look at things in the book of Acts, we also want to look at the rest of the New Testament and look for the continuities and discontinuities. And whenever what's happening in the book of Acts is being clearly practiced in other areas at other times, then we say, all right, we should probably do it that way. And whenever it's something that's just in the book of Acts, especially early in the book of Acts, and we don't see it talked about a lot in the rest of the New Testament, we want to learn principles from that. But it's probably not meant to be a blueprint for us to put in direct action at Taylor's First Baptist Church or Calvary Baptist Church or First Methodist Church or uh, whatever, the case, whatever the case might be. Uh, another example is deacons. You know, in, in Acts chapter 6, we have the earliest form of deacons and they have a very clear assignment. But we get to the pastoral epistles that we'll talk about next week and we, give Paul, we see Paul giving very clear instructions for what deacons are doing. There's, there's some development there from kind of the earliest problems that the deacons are solving uh, there in Jerusalem uh, to what's evolving into kind of this ongoing office of deacons that are being appointed uh, in every congregation to uh, serve this, uh, the churches. Major themes in Acts. Jesus as the universal fulfillment of the particular promises given to Jews. This is what I mean by that. 
This begins all the way with the sermon uh, at Pentecost that Peter gives. Peter starts talking about all these things that are prophesied seemingly about the Jews as the Jews. And he says, that is this. It's what happened with Jesus. Okay, he's preaching to Jews from everywhere. But then we see Paul taking those same things and saying, that is this, and he's preaching to Gentiles. And so we can debate the particulars. We've talked about this some over the last few weeks. We can debate the particulars about are there promises that are still there for only ethnic Jews, and maybe there are, but it all also applies in some way to the Gentiles as this one people of God is being drawn in from both Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is a universal message, and believers are a missionary people. Clear theme in the book of Acts. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. The gospel's power both to save individual sinners and to push back against the powers of darkness. The healings and the the exorcism and the challenging the false gods that we see. The role of signs and wonders in the earliest proclamation of the gospel. We will not chase that rabbit tonight, so don't you try. But what we can say with certainty is that the gospel preaching in the book of Acts was often accompanied by miraculous signs that demonstrated the power of the one true God over the false gods that were there. The spiritual unity of Jews and Gentiles through the new covenant of Jesus rather than through adherence to old covenant signs and ceremonies. Josh preached about this just very recently with uh, Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council. The importance of maintaining practical unity whenever division is threatened. Uh, Working together, finding a way to be united in Christ. The role of suffering in the advance of the kingdom and the continued growth of the early church despite persecution. Probably lots of other themes, but at the very least, those are some themes that stand out about the book of Acts. Any questions? Excuse me, any questions about Acts? Yeah. All right, I'm going to go back to our friend Theophilus. Mm-hmm. Um, He's God's friend, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and my reason for asking is that we're getting ready to study Luke. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's not... Yeah, that's not, that would not be unusual. Um, that's why even conservative scholars kind of go 50-50 on this and say uh, it could be a man, Theophilus, or the name Theophilus might represent people like what we imagine that man, Theophilus, to be. So there's definitely, we find throughout the... Uh, this time period, both of those types of literature that, uh, that are doing that. So it could go. It could go either way. I'm comfortable saying it was a person named Theophilus. Um, and I'm comfortable saying that because we have, now not with Luke, but we have evidence. I mean, Luke just writes the two books and they're both to Theophilus. But there's evidence of this with Paul too. We'll talk about this next week. 
But Paul has four different letters to three different individuals that were also clearly meant to be read by other people besides just those individuals to who they were primarily directed. First and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And, and there's never been a point in church history where they said, oh, we should stop reading Philemon's mail. Oh, that's just for Titus. None of my business. From the very beginning, they were circulated. So that's why I'm comfortable saying it's for a person named Theophilus and he intended for lots of other people to read it too. Hey, Theophilus, when you finish this, send it over to the Masses. They're confused or whatever the case might be. But probably not y'all. Probably not y'all. You live in a state of confusion. That's okay. Other, uh, other questions about Acts? Isn't the book of Acts great? I love the book of Acts. Let me make some recommendations. By George, we're going to finish on time. Uh, four different recommendations, and two of them I'm going to carry over for all three of these lessons. Uh, Don Carson and Doug Moose introducing the New Testament, A Short Guide to Its History and Message. They have a seminary textbook with a different title. Uh, this is like the 200-page version where they take that seminary textbook and they revise it for everyday Christians who want to learn more about the New Testament. So it's, it's a great place to go. But if you're saying, man, no, I want to read that seminary textbook because that's the person I am. Uh, the Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown uh, was written by three of my former colleagues at Southeastern Seminary, and I think it is the best evangelical New Testament textbook. It's fantastic. Uh, Daryl Bach and Benjamin Simpson's Jesus According to Scripture is a... Uh, I have this in quotes in my notes where you can't see it, but I'm going to tell you I have it kind of like this. It's a great biography of Jesus that's based on the four Gospels. So uh, Dr. Bach teaches at Dallas Seminary. He's the primary author there. And what he did is he got tired of all these different like History Channel programs and National Geographic Channel programs where people would talk about who Jesus really was, but they would never quote the Bible or they would say the Bible was totally wrong. And he just says, what does the Bible tell us? And, uh, and instead of going through the Gospels, uh, he looks at all the Gospels from a 30,000-foot view and, and develops Jesus' story chronologically from, uh, from eternity past to His death and resurrection, uh, bringing it all together. It's a great book. And then finally, for those of you who are really nerdy but really interested in the important question, can we trust the Gospels? Craig Blomberg's book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, is the definitive work on why we can trust the Gospels. Even when Matthew and Mark use different words, or even when the chronology doesn't match up perfectly, or even when one Gospel author says six days later and the other says eight days later, how do we reconcile that? Because there was two different ways that they counted days depending upon whether they were Jews or Gentiles. He addresses all those sorts of questions uh, so that we can walk away and know we can trust the Gospels. They are giving us an accurate picture of who Jesus is. It's a thick book. You're probably not going to read it from cover to cover unless you're really nerdy. I mean, I, I did that, but I'm kind of nerdy. But, uh, but it's a great book to have and just kind of pull down every once in a while if you have questions. And Jeremy's going to get several copies of that. We'll have them in the church library. So, hey, appreciate your uh, time this evening. Let's close with a word of prayer.
Lord, thank you for the Gospels. And thank you for the way the Gospels and the book of Acts remind us of the Gospel, the good news and its implications. Lord, may we live in such a way that our lives are shaped by this good news. May we follow Jesus faithfully. And may we be sensitive to how your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives this week, especially in ways that we might be a blessing to others who are around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great rest of the week.